Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The hard news in the long-form Mueller report seems to be the abundant testimony that Donald Trump ardently and persistently wanted and tried to kill the Russiagate investigation and fire its special prosecutor, but that his henchmen refused to execute the orders that would have turned his wishes into crimes. There would be no Saturday night massacre this time, said his disobedient White House counsel Don McGahn, referencing the cover-up that killed Richard Nixon's presidency. And there would be no active obstruction in the Trump case, so no indictment for it. 448 pages seem to have changed nothing. We have a runaway regime under a triumphant rogue who has slipped the noose yet again. And we still don't quite know how this very stable genius, as he describes himself, gets away with it. And we don't know anybody else who could do what he's doing. The soldier scholar Andrew Basevich is here to argue, as Pogo did, we have met the enemy and he is us. David Bromwich, the Sterling Professor of English at Yale, is with us to parse the language of combat and commentary. But we begin with the lawyer's lawyer, Seth Berman, with the Boston firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, sometime federal prosecutor with the famous Robert Morgenthau in New York, also in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. And he teaches criminal hacking law at the Harvard Law School. Seth Berman, in short, how did the Mueller crusade inspire such great expectations and so little result? You know, it's a great question. I think one thing that, uh, that happened here is it's worth taking a minute and thinking about what this report would have looked like if this exact report had dropped two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think the reaction to this report two years ago would have been totally different. I think there would have been, uh, it would have been seen as much more shocking, um, and possibly even by Republicans. I think that one thing that changed in the course of the last three years, really, I think ultimately three things changed, that made it so that when this report finally came out, it seems more like a dud than a bomb. So one of those things is that Trump, very successfully for a large portion of the electorate, has spent the last three years completely disqualifying the investigation. So that almost no matter what was in this document, large swaths of the country was not going to believe it. A second thing is that Trump and his team had gone to great lengths to raise the bar for what really constitutes shocking. And I think they had basically convinced much of the country that if this report didn't say we have on tape an agreement between Trump and Putin in which they agreed to collude in this election, it was always going to feel like a dud. Just him speaking Russian would have been something. That would have been surprising, yes. <laughs> um, so that alone, I think, would is one of the, you know, the second reason is that we're, we're, we were expecting too much, more than could be there. And then the third thing, I think, is a lot of what's in this report we've already heard. So a lot of the, you know, rather what otherwise would be shocking revelations about the chaos in the White House, the lies that various people were telling, the pressure, as you put it, to fire people that his underlings ignored. These have been coming out in the press over the course of the past two years. So while this report very nicely brings them all together and will be good for historians Mm. who didn't live through it to read, 
for those of us who have lived through it, there wasn't that much in this report you didn't already know. You remember, there was a Russian general known as the Conctator, the, the, the master of delay. But did Trump actually slow this thing down? Not really. I, I think so you that, can't even credit him with the stretching this thing out, letting it, us get used to it or numb or bored. I don't know that it's so much that Trump stretched out the investigation. I think actually as special counsel investigations go, this one was rather fast. I think it's more that uh, one of the geniuses of Trump is his ability to just push a lot of news forward. And thus, two years in the Trump era feels like much longer than it would have in Nixon's time, for example. I wondered, did Robert Mueller give away the store by promoting it as doctrine that you don't indict presidents? So the doctrine that you don't indict presidents doesn't come from Mueller. Um, that's a longtime Justice Department opinion. Where Mueller might have given up the store, though, was deciding that not only do you not indict presidents, you cannot conclude that they are worthy of indictment. And that was something I think that few people expected uh, when hmm. the report came out. So the report takes the position very clearly that Mueller was allowed to conclude the president did not commit a crime or he was allowed to conclude nothing. And he chose nothing. Not that there was, he chose that, that there wasn't for obstruction, hmm. that the, there may have been a crime, but he never comes out and says there was, because he, as you say it, gave up the store and decided that under no circumstances could he reach that But conclusion. Richard Nixon is still referred to sometimes as the unindicted co-conspirator. What's wrong with that? If, if, he, wanted to, if he wanted to nail Trump for something, it's an excellent question, and I think it would have uh, it would have been a much more powerful statement to to do that um, and make Trump an unindicted co-conspirator. Even the Southern District referred to him as Individual One <laughs> in a way that you know clearly seemed like they were saying he was an unindicted co-conspirator. The matter of obstruction, a little detail here. He is he was suspected and charged, and a lot of people believe he was clearly obstructing when he fired uh, James Comey. The other side of the story, though, is, is something in it. Comey had uh, told him, belatedly, told him once he was president, Mr. President, we've got to tell you, there's an investigation going on of Russians, and your name drifts into it, but you are not a target. Trump pressed him to say that out loud, say that to the public. Mr. Trump is not a target, and he wouldn't do it. That's when he said, wait a sec, you're playing two games here, and you're fired. I don't want you on this team. Is there not some merit in that charge? I think when you look at the Mueller report, one thing that you can see is that if you look at almost any one of the individual items that uh, Mueller explored as a potential obstruction, for most of them, there is some other explanation. But Mueller at the end of the report points out that if you look at all of them as a unit, it's very hard to understand the totality of the time without thinking that there is corrupt intent in all that happened here. So sure, there were other reasons for firing Comey. But it does seem that even in the Comey case, Trump's reasons were probably the wrong ones, not the right ones. I mean, the fact that he made great efforts to blame Rod Rosenstein for the decision to fire Trump when he also made clear... To fire... I'm sorry, for Comey. Trump made that to fire Comey. Um, that, you know, tr it was also clear that the decision to fire uh, Comey came before... Rosenstein even knew that Comey was being fired, let alone before he wrote that memo explaining why. It suggests that Trump wanted to conceal his true motives for firing Comey. Hmm. Let's stick with the foreign investigation, the foreign intelligence investigation, the FISA warrants, four of them issued in Trump time, I mean in Obama time, 
to look into what in the world the Russians and the Trumps were doing together. may have been triggered by the Clinton campaign, opposition research, that sort of thing, but it began there and proceeded. Eventually, uh, it, it comes to the matter of... Um, after the election of having to justify and what are we going to do with that investigation now, uh, that is going to be, we hear, an object of further investigation, how this thing began. What's your take on that? That it began with uh, Obama intelligence folks stretching the limits of where they would go with an opposition candidate. You know, I think one of the problems that uh, that inevitably came up when presumably the intelligence agencies decided there was a possibility that a campaign was colluding with a foreign power is there is no good response to that. And almost anything the Obama administration would do at that point was going to be criticized later. If they ignored it, if they went full force on it, I... What if they had simply said, are you aware that we are aware of something going on between you and the Russians? Said that to whom? To Trump. Well, it's clear that there was talk of trying to make public the idea that the Russians were were attempting to manipulate the election. And some Republicans in Congress, including Mitch McConnell, vetoed the idea and said that under no circumstances could they say that because then it would, you know, put the scales, um, the finger on the scales for, for Hillary. And I think one reason they were reluctant to go public with the information at the time is that there was an assumption that Hillary was going to win anyway. And it seemed like doing anything to get in the way of that and look like you're somehow putting your fingers on the scale is its own kind of problem that seemed at the time to be a worse fear than, than what they were actually investigating. Seth Berman, you're one of those young, experienced prosecutors of the sort that staffed the Mueller report. If you had been on that team, if you were starting again, how would you do it differently? I think it's a really good question. I think that one it's thing... It's the third time you said that. That's why they pay me the big I bucks, know, you know. I know. Well, um, the, the reality is the, uh, it's hard to know what they could have done at the beginning. One thing that might have been a mistake is the, the sheer um, quietness with which the investigation was done, in which there was, they never spoke. You never heard the Mueller side of the story. And there was a good reason for it, but it also left a void for a long, long time, and other mm. people got to fill that void. Um, this has been particularly acute in the last month when other people were filling the void with supposed summaries of the report. But even going back, I think the void was a problem. And if Mueller really did decide early on that his entire mandate was either to clear the president or not say what he thought, mm -hmm. I think it would have been wise to make that clear early on as well so that people's expectations of the report would match what it could be. Let me ask you, what were his expectations of his own report? Why did this um, steely-looking guy, you know, hockey-playing classmate of John Kerry at St. Paul's, this kind of thing, why, with a moderately distinguished career, did he take this on? What did he hope to prove or do? I think he hoped, and it's hard for me to know, I've, I've only met him once, um, but uh, my, my, that's, sense, that's enough. <laughs> my sense of him from everything I've read is that um, he, you know, he did it because he thought it was in the, the best interest of the country to do this investigation and do it as fairly as was possible. And I suspect that's what drove the decision at the end, that he wasn't going to come to a conclusion, that instead what he was going to do is he was just going to lay out the facts 
and let other people decide what the conclusion should be. Hmm. I'm not sure that's how the report is going to get read, but my guess is that was his intent. The way he was going to sidestep the it was a partisan report is that it was never going to say, you know, I'm the one, I made a decision here. It was always going to be, here are the facts, the American people should decide. Seth Berman, we're not done with you. Andy Basevich is up next, talking about ourselves and our country. All those rather disheartening American realities that the Trump talk distracts us from. This is Open Source. Andrew Basevich is a West Point graduate who fought in Vietnam, whose son died in Iraq. He's a soldier who became a scholar with a PhD from Princeton in American diplomatic history. By now, he's a deeply informed critic of the U.S. abroad and oftentimes at home, too. Russiagate didn't come close to what troubles you most about your country under the Trump influence, Andy. Count the ways. What are we talking about? Well, I mean, in some respects, I think I regret the way that the uh, the whole Mueller investigation and now the Mueller report has uh, hijacked uh, the conversation about uh, the meaning of the Trump presidency. The investigation was certainly necessary. Whether it was a dud or not, I don't know. But it seems to me that the larger question is, uh, how did Trump get elected in the first place? Mm-hmm. Utterly unqualified, uh, in many respects lazy ignorant. Nonetheless, 60 million of our fellow citizens uh, were so disenchanted uh, with our political system, with the trajectory of our history, that they decided that they were going to sort of throw over the apple cart and elect this guy. And in in some respects, I'm certainly not a, a fan of Trump, but in some respects, I think they had good reason to do so. I mean, we are a country uh, that is beset by grotesque economic inequality. Mm. We are a country where our, uh, the, where people have become indifferent to wars that go on forever. Uh, I'll betray, on the next point, I'll betray my sort of conservative instincts, but I think we are a country in which the reigning conception of freedom is really devoid of any moral content. Uh, Trump didn't create these problems. Uh, the problems will exist even if Trump gets thrown out of office tomorrow. It would not upset me if he were left office tomorrow. And so it seems to me that we ought to have had a parallel inquiry. Yes, let's let's do a let's do a two-year-long investigation into uh, Russian meddling in the in the in the 2016 election. But let's have an equally comprehensive investigation into the circumstances, the complaints uh, that led to the election of this utterly incompetent individual to be, uh, to be our president. I don't mean to say that, uh, that a special prosecutor would have, would have conducted that inquiry, but it seems to me that, uh, that, that we ought to, we collectively mm. ought to have insisted upon some kind of inquiry, and therefore we get away from simply uh, the, the, the notion that whatever's wrong with, uh, with, with the present circumstance somehow is related to Trump because it's not. Have you figured out why he has not made a man- taken a mandate on exactly those issues you enumerate? Inequality, eternal warfare, uh, a kind of 
Well, he doesn't it, believe he doesn't believe anything. I mean, he, he has a couple sort of uh, r- rough instincts, you know, uh, that uh, uh, trade ought to, trade accounts should balance. Uh, that immigrants are are a problem. He says he has a problem with uh, with never ending wars. But when you look at the record of his, if you compare Trump's rhetoric, the things he has said, he promised to do, mm-hmm. bold statements, compare that with what his administration has actually done, the gap is enormous. Which I think is evidence of his incompetence, his 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 lack of a of of, a, of, of curiosity, short span of attention, span. maybe. I mean, the one of the to me, the one of the most interesting things that's come out on the report is the fact that that he gives orders, and the people who work for him ignore the orders, mm-hmm. and then after a while, the president forgets, and things and and things go on. That that I think is emblematic of this administration. They can't get anything done. Uh, and and the and the principal explanation for that is the guy at the top of the pyramid. You spoke of the trajectory of our history. We all worry about it, um, but exactly what do you have in mind, and when did it begin? Well, I think it, I mean to me the the, the, the pivotal moment, the, the the pivot where we to the point where we should look to understand how we got into the mess we're in today is the end of the Cold War. Uh, this, this, this 1989, the end of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the, the, this, this moment of triumphalism, we won. History has ended. The, 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 the future is now clear. The sole superpower will preside. Uh, the rest of the world will basically uh, model itself after our uh, notion of, of democratic uh, capitalism. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the hubris uh, that... Much of the intellectual class and certainly the the political establishment uh, fell prey to is astonishing in retrospect. And you look at you look at the, at, at at the way U.S. policy and actions unfolded from that point forward. Let's talk about to, first Gulf War. Well, the Gulf War, I think, is is uh, nineteen ninety one uh, is 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 an is a, a great il- illustration. Uh, we fight a third rate army. Uh, we think we have won a decisive victory. It turns out not to be all that decisive because Saddam Hussein remains in power. We then quite foolishly uh, expand the commitment of the United States military in the Persian Gulf, leading to all kinds of unintended consequences, mm-hmm. not least among them being the 9-11 uh, attacks. Uh, and, and that narrative to which most Americans, I think, continue to be uh, ignorant uh, is an example of how we went from this moment of seeming uh, supremacy uh, in 1989 to a point where we elect this incompetent individual president in 2016, and more more importantly, that the country finds itself so deeply divided and confused about what really ought to be the uh, most important issues of our democracy. When did the inequality trend sort of gather critical momentum in your retrospect? Well, uh, I'm I'm not going to be able to say here's the date. It is a fact, however, uh, that in the post-war period, let's say from the uh, latter part of the 1940s into the 1970s, inequality was decreasing. All boats were rising. The rich were getting richer, but so were people who were, the the status of people who were not rich was also improving. By the time we get into 
the post-Cold War period and the celebration of globalization uh, as the approach that's going to make everybody rich, well, that's where mm. we find that that's not the case. And, and the growth of inequality in the post-Cold War period is notable. One could say the same thing about the use of force. We made enormous mistakes during the Cold War, Vietnam being the, uh, the, the, the biggest example. But nonetheless, during the Cold War, the principal rationale for U.S. national security policy was we're going to do a set of things because we believe that doing those things will prevent World War III from happening. The idea was to maintain military power in reserve, not to put it to use. After, after 1989, again, Operation Desert Storm be an example, that, uh, that, that goes away. And we want, we want to put American military power to work. And we see this pattern of interventionism through, through every president of the post-Cold War era, Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, uh, f- small wars, large wars, mm. wars that have some rationale, wars that have no rationale whatsoever. And simultaneously, the American people are basically disengaging from their military. So there's no accountability. There's a lot of lip service about supporting the troops, but no, but no serious interest in what the troops are actually doing and, who, and the price that, that's being paid. Andrew Basevich, you wrote a stunning piece, one in a series in Low Blog, also in Thomas's Patch, making the point that we have turned around the famous Clausewitz doctrine that war is an extension of diplomacy and political ends. We seem now to pursue wars opportunistically for their political value or something. Well, and this again, this is where the Trump uh, presidency is interesting. Trump has stated repeatedly. Now, whether he no- means it or not, I don't know. But but he uh, great great powers don't fight endless wars. He says he has said, "I want us out of Afghanistan. I want us out of Syria." And guess what? It doesn't happen uh, because there are. The, the same people who disobey his, his orders in the Oval Office hmm. uh, basically find reasons not to obey his orders about uh, U.S. military policy. Again, and so I, the wars continue, and you, and you have to say, well, who benefits by the continuation of the wars? And, you know, military-industrial complex, uh, the military itself, uh, but, but, the, but so many of our wars, and I would cite Afghanistan and Syria— uh, as examples, but you can th- you can throw in Yemen, where we are indirect participants, do not and serve any plausible the- military purpose. Again, I wonder why he doesn't follow through. He took the knocks for telling Hillary Clinton in debate that, no, the generals don't know what they're doing in the Middle East. He took the heat for uh, Mattis's, you know, angry retirement. Why doesn't he follow up with some sort of I action? think he's fundamentally weak. You know, there's a lot of bluster. Uh, but but there but the determination to make things happen, which requires persistence, uh, is not part of his personality. Hmm. Make room for David Bromwich, who joins us from Yale. David Bromwich knows the language of politics and the politics of language from the masters like Edmund Burke, Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and all of them. Uh, David, listeners have heard me say you're my favorite close reader of just about anything. What's going on here in this Mueller report? What do you, where does your eye land? Well, I think he uh, wanted, in part, to offset the mistakes that a lot of lawyers could see uh, had occurred under the 
guidance of the intelligence chiefs, you know, Brennan, uh, Comey, and Clapper, uh, and it, they were seen to be partisan uh, against Trump when they brought that case against him uh, in on January 6th and said, you know, we, we have this uh, dossier, here's a particularly grisly, gross incident from it. Um, it looked as if there was something very partial uh, happening from intelligence, and that's not lawyer-like. And I think mm. Rosenstein, uh, the deputy uh, attorney general, reflected that, too, in the initial memorandum he wrote for Trump. So uh, Mueller seems to be an absolutely straight um, adjudicator kind of lawyer, and very different in his handling of the FBI, by all accounts, uh, than Comey had been. So, you know, he decided to go at this just as a straightforward investigation and, and I think probably uh, had resolved at the start not to make any final recommendations unless he found absolute burning hot evidence of a crime. And he didn't. I, I don't, uh, I don't it, quite it, get that. He, he anticipated that he wouldn't have very clear findings? No, no. I, I, may, may, I may have said it wrong. Uh, he he resolved that unless there were evidence that was very clear, he was just going to present what he found uh, what he found out about Trump, but not going to make any overt recommendation for impeachment or for indictment on this or that. And I think people expected from the sort of circumstantial evidence that was brought forward continuously uh, in the mainstream media, particularly the New York Times and CNN, I would say. Uh, people expected that these circum- these bits of circumstantial evidence all pointing to the fact that Trump had something to hide about mm-hmm. his relationships to Russia, that they would add up to something that could knock him out of the presidency. And I talked to lawyers very well placed in the permanent establishment, as a friend of mine calls it, uh, who mm-hmm. were quite sure that uh, Trump would be out within six months of becoming president. That was the thinking. And I, I believe Mueller, by the time Comey had been fired and Mueller's called forward to be uh, the special counsel, uh, he decided to, to, to take a different posture to begin with. So I think the surprise is owing to the expectations that were built up by a lot of commentators, um, but not, not something that couldn't have been predicted from the nature of the evidence, which was considerable, but again, circumstantial, and from the nature of Mueller as he had been known before. He's a man of law with no particular um, uh, views about uh, you know, what, what, should, what should happen to a president or not. David, uh, you're not a lawyer. Uh, Seth Berman, do you want to respond on that quickly? And yeah, then I have I another could. question for you, David. So I, I agree with you, David, actually. I think there's a lot to be said for what you're saying. I also think one of the things that um, Mueller worked in the shadow of, of course, is his predecessors. Not just Comey in this investigation, but also Ken Starr. Um, and I think there was a real attempt from the beginning to make sure that this investigation did not turn into the circus of Ken Starr. And it was partly for that reason that there was the the never talking to the press aspect. But I suspect it was then that a decision was made that they're not going to go forward and say the president is guilty of something, anything. They're just going to come forward with here are the facts and and other people are going to have to make the decision of what happens next. So they don't end up vilified like either Comey was with Hillary or like Ken Starr was uh, with uh, the Clinton investigation. David, I want yep. you to be a non-lawyer, a literary man, a word man. Well, let's take, let's take three words. Um, Great. The word that was uh, used preeminently uh, by people like uh, Chris Matthews, Rachel Maddow, and people not only on CNN, editorial writers for the New York Times, too, 
the word was collusion, a mm. word, as I understand it, that has no legal status, whatever. Um, but it, it means relations that are too close. It means a kind of collaboration. It means shady dealings that uh, implicate a, a betrayal of an undefined sort. That was, the, that was the word we all got used to, and we, we didn't know what it meant. Uh, it just mm. it, it exposed something about the corruption, which is the essence of the Trump personality, both public and private. But the words that uh, Mueller chose to use uh, in, in a crucial position describing uh, the conclusions he did and did not come to, the words were cooperation uh, or conspiracy. Now, conspiracy is a legal term. Uh, you're, you're planning, two people or more, planning uh, to commit a crime, and they know it's a crime. Cooperation means conscious collaboration toward an end which both have agreed on, whether it's legal or illegal. And, you know, he said that Trump couldn't clearly uh, be convicted. Uh, I'm using convicted now in a non-legal sense. Trump couldn't clear. It wasn't mm. clearly established that Trump had cooperated or conspired with Russians. That's a very, <laughs> to say that he hasn't committed this crime shouldn't appear as a positive qualification to continue as president. But again, as, as your previous guest has said, the bar has been lowered so far um, that it is the bar for convicting him has been raised and the bar for passing as president has been lowered so much that this was all it took. The matter of obstruction is very different, and as I see it, uh, firing uh, not only Sally Yates and James Comey and later Sessions, mm. of all things, but firing uh, Pete Barrara at the beginning. Uh, these, these things smell fishy, to say the least. He, he took on people who would know a great deal about his financial dealings, including the possibility of laundered money uh, uh, from uh, Russian oligarchs in earlier years, and he got rid of them. He unloaded them. I mean, that kind of connection points to something. Um, but whether what it points to has any legal standing or whether uh, with the Republican uh, Congress it can lead to impeachment, that's a whole different question. And Mueller chose not to get involved with that. And in that respect, I think he went along with the eventual consensus of the same intelligence chiefs who had tried to precipitate a constitutional crisis in January 2017. That is, they realized that forcing an impeachment against a reluctant Republican Senate mm. would be very inadvisable in the explosive state of the country, the divided state of the country. And Comey said in more than one setting in a New York Times editorial, and he said it in conversation with Nicole Wallace at the YMHA in New York, that he just didn't think uh, it was a good idea to impeach unless they had assurance of convicting, which you need two-thirds vote for. And he preferred that the American people defeat Trump in a landslide. Um, and then he, <laughs> Comey, being at least officially a man of law, too, backed off and said on both occasions, well, if Congress feels it has the evidence and that it must do its constitutional duty, yes, they should impeach him, but that might not be the best outcome. So you have all these people who are concerned with laws and intelligence with surveillance, with finding out facts. You have these people making a political calculations, strategic calculations on behalf of the country. Hold, hold it there, David, for just a moment. Uh, when we come back, I, I, I want to talk, talk about lowering the bar. I want to talk about, hear you on Trump's language. All that expletive, no collusion, simple, vulgar, and maybe the core of his practice, how he feasts on adversity and disrepute. This is Open Source.
Max Frankel, who was once my boss in the New York Times Washington Bureau, wrote an interesting op-ed in the Times about a week ago. The point was there didn't need to be any collusion because there was a fundamental understanding. And the fundamental understanding was that the Russians were suffering under the sanctions related to Crimea and and uh, uh, Kiev, and but also that Trump, for whatever reasons, business experience, whatever, wanted a change in the relationship. They both understood that. They didn't need to spell out any details. Um, that makes the Russian interference kind of a sideshow, and it also makes the whole question of who struck John or spoke to whom, you know, in the shadows of the of Moscow, irrelevant. David, does that explain things? I think it explains a lot, and it, it uh, dovetails with the observation Comey made about having the impression of... Uh, Mafia Don of a, of a gangster world when he first visited Trump to interview him. Um, mm-hmm. And with Cohen saying that, uh, you know, as for whether Trump had hitmen or whether anybody in the Trump orbit was asked to uh, injure someone, uh, Cohen said uh, in his uh, congressional testimony, uh, the people who, who would do that are already in the Trump organization, and Mr. Trump doesn't have to tell them. Uh, he implies it. So you know, there's a, there are understandings that mm. go without having to spell it out. And I think inside inside the Trump White House and so on, clearly that's a lot of what went on. And I think Frankel probably has the right end of it there. He I made the point about mind. the, the yep. meeting in Trump Tower with the Russian woman. The, the code interest in that meeting was her expression about, uh, her opinion about, or her plea really, about adopting Russian children. Right. That was stopped by the sanctions and to bring that up was to was to signal was code for sanctions exactly yeah did frankel say that in his op-ed he did yeah so he was being clever i mean that was an inference i'm sure he doesn't know that but it sounds true it sounds sounds like the sort he of was once the on moscow bureau chief whatever that proves in yeah, Khrushchev sure. time. yeah yeah let me ask andy what as a patriot as a fighting man a cold warrior once upon a time how do you react to this the, the outrage of Russian interference was it that much? It was not a particle of what we did in Yeltsin's re-election. Well, what I mean, we do I mean, everywhere else in the yeah, world. Yeah, I, I think I give the answer not so much as a long time ago soldier, but as a more recently a historian. And you know, the, the I mean, we should denounce in the strongest terms uh, anybody interfering in our election, uh, but we might also. Uh, Somewhat modestly, perhaps, uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, we have a record of doing that all the time. I just read a new biography, not yet published, of uh, Richard Holbrook by George Packer. Interesting book. And uh, toward the end of the book, he talks about uh, uh, Holbrook being sent to be the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Holbrook basically decided on his own ticket that uh, we were going to prevent... uh, Karzai from being reelected president of Afghanistan. Uh, he failed, but he exerted himself very significantly to try to basically bring about a regime change in Kabul. We do that. I guess great powers do that. So we might, uh, it is understandable uh, that we get upset when somebody else is uh, uh, meddling in our own politics, but let us understand that our hands are not exactly clean on these matters. Fascinating. While you're at it, Andy, what else would you have preferred to hold uh, Donald Trump accountable for in, in the litany of bad 
deeply worrisome symptoms you see in our country? Well, again, I think, you know, I, I feel like I'm the odd man out in this conversation uh, in, the, in, the sen- so? in the sense that... I agree with you on everything. <laughs> no, in, in, in the sense that I think that the, the principal problems that beset our country, Donald Trump didn't create them. The problems that beset our country give us an explanation for how Donald Trump got elected president. I disagree with you there. In terms of money worship, just plain gaudy, guild everything, consumerism, he is the the Trump card. A horrible example. I, I, I think that's right. Uh, and, but 60 million of our fellow citizens voted for him, chose him. Uh, but if you want to say why, why did they? I think I think the reason they did is because they were utterly disenchanted with uh, the political system that had brought us to brought the country to where it was in 2016. It was a protest vote. The the election of 2016 was a plebiscite. I mean, what, what Trump's cleverness, I think, was basically transforming uh, the election into a single question: Are you happy or not with the way this country is going? And if you're if you're not happy, well, you know who to vote for, and that's how he got in. Uh, again, I think the guy is utterly incompetent; never should have been president. But it seems to me that rather than uh, uh, continuing to go down this rabbit hole of his uh, of of his collaboration uh, with uh, with Russia, which I deplore, mm. but nonetheless, it seems to me there ought to be more attention to. Why do we have a country in which this grotesque inequality exists? Why do we have a country that spends $750 billion a year on a military that has military bases and what is it, 180 different countries that is constantly at war, never seems to win? How does that happen? Uh, how does it happen that we have a culture that is uh, so, in, in my judgment, self-indulgent, uh, directionless? Trump didn't create those problems. But to my mind, those are some of the principal attributes of the of the of the country that we are, and I would rather that uh, we focus more attention on those problems than on how we're going to get this guy out of office. If we got him out of office tomorrow, those problems would still exist. David Rummage, how do you explain his grip on us? And I want you to speak especially about his language. Well, it, you know, in in relation to what Andrew Bacevich just said about the wars. And the fact that there are multiple wars now, six, seven, if you include Yemen, if you include uh, Somalia, um, and we don't even think about them, and they're way off the front page. I think Trump turns even that into entertainment. And with a phrase like witch hunt uh, or a phrase like total exoneration, um, he's able to dispense with people's, you know, ordinary emotions about such things. I mean, in his CPAC speech, I was just looking at it online while you talked, (laughs) because I saw some of it. I mean, it was remarkable how he talked about, you know, landing uh, in uh, Syria, and uh, I met generals I didn't know, General 1, General 2, General 3, he calls them, General 1, General 2, General 3. I mean, these generals, there's no person in Hollywood could play the role. These guys are like perfect people. And then he, he names one of them, he, who's a general named Raisin, so he calls him Raisin Kane, and he says, I just made him a big star, just like I did with Matt Mattis when I said, we're going to give you a new nickname, because chaos is not a name. So he changed his name, and I called him Mad Dog. The the proficiency, the dexterity that Trump has as a daytime type reality TV entertainer is is part of his hold on American culture, and it is it is vulgar in a new way. 
it is the antithesis and counterpart of Obama's refinement, mm. uh, which also was new to see in a recent president. And I think, uh, you know, th- that's part of what uh, uh, distracts people, keeps them entertained. And if you keep talking about him, they'll come back to these trashy simplicities. Uh, and Trump says memorable things. They're meaningless as to policy. They are inconsequent. One thing doesn't follow another, as Basevich just said. But um, I, I, I have uh, a new notion, David. Yeah. And I, I'm feeling very clever about it. Where did Trump get that role? Where did he figure it out? He got it from an amazing David Mamet movie, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, in the part <laughs> in the persona uh, acted by none Alec other Baldwin. than you know his 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 now tormentor Alec Baldwin. Alec yeah. Baldwin is the guy who comes in from headquarters and yeah. tells all these real estate students, "You're fired. You're a loser. My watch yeah, but- is worth more than your house." Uh, you're fired. Always be closing that incredible but, yeah, speech. Yeah, yeah. And- That's in Trump. I agree with you. That's an inspired thought. But and I, I remember that moment in the movie. But uh, Baldwin is a speech of total continuous aggression. There is one unified emotion in it, and it is meant as a put down to everyone. Trump's the effect of Trump is there, there's the put down, but there's also the vulgar slap on the back humor, and he includes you in. Uh, he's the big guy, but he includes you in. And I think that's a feeling, I'm sorry to say, uh, that's a, peel, a feeling that a lot of our fellow citizens seem to respond to. 30 to 40 percent, I would estimate, will follow Trump no matter what he does. At, that is, at this point, they just like the guy. David, I have one more question about language, and that is why is the language of invective aimed at him every day, you know, by the carload in the New York Times and other mainstream media, so utterly ineffective? Well, because it's, it, it comes across as snobbish, snotty, hidey-tidy, moralistic. It comes from, you know, uh, central casting of the elite political correct world of the Ivy League and the New York Times. And people have learned uh, that that is a mask, um, that, it, that it is responsible for you know, uh, protecting uh, the makers of the 2008 collapse from the public exposure that they deserved and from, you know, uh, the fact that people don't know why we're still in these wars and why their job situations aren't better. I think that Mm. they identify that moralistic language with the establishment and with Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. And Trump is still able to run against it, even though he's the most powerful person in the country. That's a trick. Richard Nixon had a bit of the same thing. He was run. He, he thought he was standing in the White House. He still thought he, he he was on the outside running against the country. I want to come back because we have to to the legal issues that are left. Seth Seth Berman, um, uh, an interesting observer of all of this, the Financial Times columnist uh, Ed, and his last name is. Loose uh, says this is not the end of RussiaGate at all. That there are innumerable leads for Congress to pursue or investigators, and not even the New York personal life stuff, but actionable evidences and charges still to be mined. What what do you think? Where would you go? So I'll answer that in two parts. I think that if you're asking from the perspective of the report and what's in it, from the four corners of the report, I agree that there are other areas to pursue. For one thing. I read the report to essentially say to Congress, this is your job. 
I'm laying out the evidence for you, and now you have to decide what you want to do with it. Mm. I think the attorney general took it upon himself to say, I think it was a, qu a question to me, and I've answered it no, but I'm not sure that's what Mueller meant. I think Mueller meant to say, Congress, you run with this. So that's the answer within the four corners of the of the report. And I'll add one thing to that, which is, if you ask a different question about the report than most people are asking, which is not what does this say about the president or what does it say about the country, but if this these actions had been committed by a regular person who is not the president, let's say by a mafia don who had done all these things, you were hmm. investigating them for mafia activities. And what you, you said, I can't prove the mafia activities, but look at all this obstruction they've done. I guarantee you any federal prosecutor would take that case. They would happily go after the obstruction, the calling witnesses rats and publicly offering to reward those who don't talk and you know punish those who do. We would absolutely go after that. So I think within the complaint, the, the four corners of what mm. he wrote, that's your answer. But I think there's a larger question here, which is the one that Andrew keeps raising, which is, are we losing something by focusing only on this issue? The beginning of the Trump era may have started with the Russia gate, and it is definitely a big thing that's happened. But there's been a lot that's happened in this administration. And would we be better off as a country if we spent our time focusing on what is actually going on here? What is the Trump administration doing that's good? What is it doing that's bad? And do we want that as a country? Instead, we're in two camps, which is either he's exonerated or he's not exonerated. But neither one says whether or not he's doing any good. And maybe if we focused more on that, the 40% of the country that's in his camp might view it a different way. Or maybe the 60% that's not in his camp will view it a different way. Well, that, and that's Andrew where I, I, would, I would say, you know, Seth earlier referred to the report as kind of a dud. Uh, and it's a dud in the sense that it didn't deliver the clear-cut judgments that the, uh, you know, uh, New York Times, uh, CNN, and the like expected. But it's it's not a dud uh, in this regard, I think. When, when the attorney general... Uh, issued his four-page letter well, that ten days ago or so, two weeks ago. Uh, that sort of lit all the air out of the out of the impeachment balloon. Uh, Democrats were starting to say, "Well, if we're not going to be able to get Trump, what are we going to what are we going to do? What are we going to stand for?" My sense is just in, over the course of today is that the uh, the the impeachment train is uh, back on track. Uh, and the Democrats are energized. Uh, there, there is enough here for us to get this guy after all. And I say that with regret because I think I mean, if they get him, that's fine. But, but, but I, I, I anticipate that we're going to have another two years or so in which impeaching Trump is going to be the story, not Trump's governess, not the direction of the country. And it's going to be a wasted political opportunity as we move to the next election. Seth, do you see legal grounds for impeachment, much less political will? Legal grounds, yes. I, I think that the report makes out obstruction of justice, and I think that we should be shocked that a president would use his power in this way. So yes, I don't think it's so different from what Nixon did. Political grounds, well, I'm the lawyer here, so it's outside my scope, but it doesn't seem to me that that's where the world is. David Brumwich, where does it go from here? Where do you want it to go? Um, I agree with <laughs> both of our interlocutors that, that uh, you know, the opposition party should start taking a stand as a party, what it thinks the country should do, uh, what it thinks Trump is doing that is wrong, but not uh, make their concentration all be focused on 
the personality of Trump. That that's an argument that's been had. People know what they think of him or what they're willing to say, and they should just get off that track. Start covering the if you're the media, start covering the wars. Start talking about them the way Tulsi Gabbard has done, and the way one or two other Democratic uh, candidates have done. Talk about climate change in every speech you make, and talk about health care as something that people seem to uh, know matters to them and that the Republican Party can do and will do nothing about. I mean, there are a couple of issues that they can keep stressing. You can't go over a laundry list of 10 or 12 things, trans bathrooms and Islamophobia and everything else that the Democrats tend to put on their lists. Uh, and Trump shouldn't be at the head of the list. Uh, he, he commands enough attention by his tweets Stop replying to his tweets. I sense that from the beginning, that though that the establishment Democrats of the Pelosi stripe knew from the beginning that they weren't going to take on the economic scandal in the country, much less climate change, and that the, their wildest hope was that a, a Russia magic could take the burden off them uh, yeah. without having to really change step at all. Since the AOC... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez generation appeared. Uh, there's another hope or another possible direction, but I don't know. Well, I, I, what I said, you know, a few minutes ago, uh, that people I consider part of the permanent establishment were very sure of themselves that Trump would be out the door within six months. Uh, and they were sure of it because of Russia. And they were willing to whip up another Cold War fever. <laughs> yeah. in order to help that uh, along. And there's been great damage from that. And they should begin to think as sober citizens and members of an opposition party. I hear that traveling music. Thank you, David Bromwich. Thank you, Andrew Basevich. Thank you, Seth Berman. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, George Hicks is our engineer, Mary McGrath is our lead prosecutor. I'm just... Christopher Lydon, join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.